Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Ah, yes, risk management. Definitely one of those topics that's going to be front and center for those of us in the medical device industry for quite some time, maybe forever. So enjoy this episode as I talk to Mike Drews once again on the Global Medical Device Podcast, and our topic is all about risk management. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Once again, this is your host, John Spear, the VP of Quality and Regulatory and founder at Greenlight.guru. Also, I have with me Mike Drews. Mike is the president of Vascular Sciences. You've heard his insights and wisdom before. Guess what? FDA listens to Mike as well, as, as does Health Canada and other regulatory bodies and medical device companies all over the world. Mike, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, John. My pleasure to be with you and your audience as well. All right. Do you have your sleeves rolled up? I definitely do. <laughs> well, today uh, we're going to dive into... I'm sure we've talked and danced around this topic a, a bit before, and I'm sure this won't be the last time, but, but it, the topic is risk management. And we're going to dive into some, uh, I guess, some interesting novel approaches. We're going to dive into something that you've been advising and using in your world as a way to help companies navigate this this topic. I'm going to talk a little bit about a few things that I've seen and experienced, but risk management, are you up for the challenge? I'm definitely up for it, John. <laughs> All right. Well, let me just give a, a brief, I guess, prelude, so to speak, to our audience this morning. Risk management is one of those topics that, that I think is gaining a lot of traction in the med device industry and has been for the past several years. That was really kind of, I guess, a high watermark, so to speak, with the emergence of ISO 13485 2016. And that standard, when that was revised a few months back, has put a lot more emphasis on risk management and risk-based approaches and risk-based QMS and focuses, you know, those methodologies that are described and processes that are described in ISO 14971. So I know companies struggle with this. Mike, I know you've experienced that. So any horror stories you want to share before we dive into to some details today? Well, thanks, John. The, the little prelude that I would offer um, is that I often see companies take their risk management plan from their design controls and literally copy and paste that into their risk mitigation strategy for their regulatory submission for their yeah. 510K or PMA or what have you. And without even looking at it, I right away I know that it's wrong or at the very least is incomplete. Because right. as we'll discuss, the risk in a design control sense is only is, is very limited. It's only one small slice of the pie compared to uh, other aspects of risk that, in my opinion, are, are critical to go into a, a regulatory submission. Yeah. I, I, so, I see. So one, no, go ahead. So I was just going to say one, one, one small piece of advice, and again, we'll get into the details here, is uh, please don't just, uh, as, as often people do, copy and paste the risk management plan from the design controls into your risk mitigation strategy for your regulatory submission because it's just not adequate. Yeah, and, and a lot of people get really confused on this topic. You know, FDA, I guess explicitly in the regulations, doesn't really say too much about risk management. 
They don't. And, you know, the question is, as we've talked about before, John, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I would like that to, to believe that that would be up to us to, you know, as professionals, you know, engineers or scientists or designers or, or regulatory professionals working in the medical device industry, we would know how to handle that and we would not need the FDA or anybody else to, to micromanage us in that regard. But that's just my view and that's obviously not the view of everybody in this industry. Well, and, and I think I go back to, to early on in my career and I remember one of the first times that I got involved with risk management and at the time we were using an FMEA approach and I think we did just it was really a checkbox activity to be quite honest it was very late in the project it wasn't done in the spirit of adding value to what we were doing but the belief at that time was that we needed to have risk management so i remember barricading myself at my computer at my desk for about 3 hours putting together this this <laughs> fmea document all by myself and i got to check the little risk management box on our design review form and you know, that that really defeated the purpose. I strongly agree, John. And I personally believe that using any of the standardized or traditional approaches to risk, whether it's the FMEA or the different ISO approaches that you mentioned a moment ago, those are at best limited approaches to risk. And so if you'd like, I'd be happy to quickly talk you and your audience through my sort of more systematic approach, and then we can, you know, discuss the, the merits of, of applying it. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued that you you shared with me an article, and I'll be sure to put a link to that in the transcript that include that that's included with this post, the link to your article, and I'm going to call it Mike's bucket approach to risk management. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this? It's it's intriguing. Sure. So I'm happy to. So the idea came from years of experience. You know, I've been playing this game for nearly 25 years now and seeing people do exactly what you just described. And that is they'll follow one of these standard methods or they'll get a bunch of engineers together in a room and have sort of a risk brainstorming session and where they'll they just sort of randomly pick off as many different risks as they possibly can. Right. This is what I call the cherry-picking approach. It's not a very organized, it's not a very systematic approach. And as a result, you can never be assured that you got all of the important risks that you need to, to cover. So over the last several years, I've developed a more standardized, a more logical approach, which, by the way, FDA has uh, just recently announced that they're going to be adopting in part as, as to uh, their approach to risk in the future. But here's the idea. I break my types of risks into three buckets. For those in your audience who remember the old Bozo Circus show, this is like the grand prize game approach. That was the, so best, bucket part, number, the best part of the show, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So bucket number one is what I call the probability of direct harm. The probability of direct harm. Now, this is the most obvious form of risk. This is the one that most everybody thinks of. And this is the only form of risk that is, that is addressed in the design control sense of the word. So the probability of direct harm means what is the probability, what is the likelihood that harm will be caused to the patient? Usually it's to the patient, occasionally to the caregiver as a direct result, as a direct consequence of using your particular medical device. Mm -hmm. So that's bucket number one, the probability of, of direct harm. Okay. Bucket number two is the probability of harm if we do not use our device. One of the many interesting re regulatory differences between a 510K and a PMA is that in a PMA submission, as some of your audience probably knows, 
there is a regulatory requirement in the submission to consider what FDA calls alternative practices and procedures, what I call the probability of harm of not using. We're using different words, but we mean exactly the same thing. So if we don't use our device, what other devices could we use? What other surgical procedures are, are, are available? What drugs are available? And so on and so on. So that's the probability of harm if we don't use our device. That's bucket number two. Okay. And again, that is not addressed in the design controls. Right. And the third bucket is what I call the probability of harm of, uh, by providing the wrong information. The probability of harm by providing the wrong information. This is endemic in all diagnostic products. So, for example, telemetry like EKG monitors, mm-hmm. imaging like CT or MR, in vitro diagnostics, an IVD for cancer detection. I use that as a quick example. Let's say we have an IVD for, say, cervical cancer. What is the probability of telling the patient that they do not have cancer when, in fact, they do? That would be a false negative. Or alternatively, what's the probability of telling the patient they they have cancer when, in fact, they don't? Mm -hmm. That would be a false positive. So that's the probability of harm of not, of providing the wrong information. Okay. And once again, that is not considered in the design control sense of the word of, of, of risk. Right. Now, those are my three buckets of risk, and we can go into those in more detail if you want. But one other bucket, a bonus bucket, if you will, um, <laughs> this is, is, is what I call, <laughs> that's right, is what I call regulatory risk. Okay. Now, regulatory risk also has many connotations. But regulatory risk means what is the probability that I am not successful in selling whatever it is that I'm trying to sell at the FDA. When I go to the FDA and I'm down there at least once a month, I'm going to be down there at the end of this week uh, doing a pre-sub meeting for a company. Every single submission to the FDA has a regulatory risk associated with it. We cannot we cannot eliminate it. We can minimize it, but we can't eliminate it. Right. So when I work with companies, I always discuss with them. I never discuss this at the FDA, right. but I always discuss with them what is the regulatory risk of that particular strategy. But but, but that's it. I just throw that in for sort of completeness. The first three buckets are the most important. The probability of direct harm, the probability of harm if we do not use our device, and the probability of providing the wrong information. John, I know you have a lot of experience in, in, in risk and especially in the right. more traditional approaches to design uh, to risk and the design controls, yeah. and the ISO and so on. What do you think of, of my uh, Bozo Circus approach to risk? <laughs> well, we, we probably need to r- remove the clown reference when we talk about risk. But as far as the bucket methodology, I do like that a lot. It's And I think I'm speculating here that most of those listening are probably most familiar with bucket number one, the probability of direct harm. This is where, you know, as you mentioned, this is the context in the design control, design and development aspects where we're evaluating, identifying and evaluating risk associated with the use of the device. I think, you know, buckets two and three, and then the bonus bucket of, of four, and let me recap for everyone. Bucket number one, again, is probability of direct harm. Bucket number two is probability of harm of not using. Bucket three, probability of providing the wrong information. And bonus bucket number four is assessing the regulatory risks associated with your product. I think, you know, when you think about direct harm, and we'll dive into that here in a few moments, get into more specifics, but I think that's an area that, for the most part, I think 
we all as medical device product developers and manufacturers, I think we do an okay job of wrapping our head around that. And I'll uh, explore that here in a moment with you. Uh, but I'm curious about the probability of harm I'm not using and probability of providing wrong information. I mean, engineers, technical people, they're often looking for some sort of guide or prescriptive tool or methodology to use. Is there some other advice or guidance that you can provide the listeners as to how to capture that? Is this a report? Is this a spreadsheet? And and I know I'm getting down into the very tactical, down in the weed level, but what are your thoughts? That's a great question, John, because we want to make this as pragmatic for our audience as possible. And, you know, obviously, if anybody has specific questions about how to apply these buckets to their own individual devices, please feel free to contact us. We'd be more than happy to talk to you. But in a general sense, let's talk about bucket number two and and number three, starting out with bucket number two, the probability of harm uh, if we do not use it. So I mentioned a moment ago that this is one of the, the many differences between a 510K and a PMA. In the PMA, there is a regulatory requirement, what FDA calls alternative practices and procedures, what I call the probability of harm of not using. Once again, we're using different words, but we're saying exactly the same thing. That requirement does not exist in the 510K universe, at least not yet. We have had, in the interest of full disclosure, your audience probably knows that I work as a consultant for the FDA as well. We have had some discussions about adding that requirement into the 510K, and for that matter, the de novo as well. I personally think there is some merit to doing that, but it's not in there yet. The question is, why is it in the, the PMA? The simple answer is, when you think about it, it makes a, it makes sense because PMA products are, by definition, higher-risk products, oftentimes life-supporting or life-sustaining, and it's not sufficient to look at only the risks associated directly with your particular device. You also have to look at the risks and how they compare to other devices, right. other surgical procedures, other drug options, and so on. And if you really want to get into the details... The PMA requirement says alternative practices and procedures, but it doesn't say, for example, you know, which ones that we have to consider. So I'll give you a quick example. A couple of years ago, I was helping a company bring a type of catheter to the market that was being used for controlling blood pressure. And this was a PMA device. And so the PMA requirement required us to consider alternative practices and procedures, including drug options. There are more than 170 drugs on the market that have as part of their label antihypertensive. So does that mean that we have to compare our catheter to 170 drugs? Well, if it did, this catheter would never come onto the market. Nobody would ever do that. So what we had to do is we had to figure out a way to sell this to minimize our regulatory risk at the FDA. And in in a nutshell, here's how we did it. Not getting into a lot of pharmacology, but we can break those 170 drugs into three or four different categories. And what we did was we took the one or two market leaders in each of those three or four different categories and we compared our device to those. So instead of comparing our device to 170, we compared it to six or eight. That's a much more reasonable number. The question becomes, why is it six or eight? Well, that's the logic that I just outlined to defend it because what is much more important when we go to the FDA, what is much more important is where we draw the line. That's not really important at all. What's more important is our ability to defend it. We chose to compare our device to these six or eight different drugs, and here is exactly why. 
Right. It's the job of the FDA, in my opinion, to criticize everything. In other words, if the company comes into the FDA and says the sky is blue, the FDA's job, if they're doing their job, is to say, okay, prove it. Right. So, and that's our job. So that's a quick example on the, yeah, the probability of, of, of harm of not using or alternative practices and procedures. Again, I know a lot of your audience is in the 510K world. You're probably not used to thinking in those terms yet, but I emphasize the word yet, that might be a regulatory requirement in the future. And even yeah. if it is not, I think just as part of being a prudent, prudent professional, that's something that we should include anyway. Yeah, no, it's, it's it makes really good sense. And, and I'm going to jump into the FMEA uh, spin here in a moment. But I, as you describe this this bucket of the harm of not using, I hear that, that there's a strong clinical aspect of this. Would you agree? Yes, in that particular case, there was definitely a strong clinical aspect of it. But I suppose by definition, for both bucket number two, the probability of harm of of not using, and for bucket number three, the probability of harm of per, due to providing the wrong information, there are going to be very strong clinical aspects to both of them. Right. Because uh, again, think about the, the cancer example yeah. that I used a moment right. ago. What's the probability of telling the patient they do have cancer when in fact they do not? Right. And what's the probability of telling the patient they do not have cancer when in fact they do? Right. In my opinion, every regulatory strategy, whether it's a 510K, a PMA, a de novo, what have you, Every single one should address all of those buckets of risk. And by the way, one other approach that I have that, that differentiates my approach to so many others is I'm not interested in just simply meeting the regulatory requirements. In other words, I want to demonstrate to my friends on the FDA side of the table that I know what the heck that I'm doing, that, I, that I'm you know, a responsible professional. And I use exactly the same process, whether I'm bringing a Band-Aid onto the market or a totally implantable artificial heart. I use exactly the same process, and I apply the exact you know risk analysis that you and I are are thinking are, are discussing here, whether it's a band aid or an artificial heart. Now, obviously, in the case of a band aid, some of these things would not be applicable, and I would sure. simply say sure. that the, the probability of providing the wrong information is not applicable to a band aid because we're not providing any information. Right. But nonetheless, I still include it in there because I want to make it painfully obvious to my friends on the other side of the table that I know what the heck that I'm doing. Right. I appreciate you going into some depth and detail on, on the buckets. That's very, very helpful. Now, I want to take a, a slight turn, you know, probably stay in, we can stay in the context of the bucket approach to risk management, of course, but I want to dive into this topic a little bit of, of FMEAs. Uh, and I, Mike, I probably am referred to in, in the industry these days as the anti-FMEA guy when it comes to... <laughs> I think well, I'm, that's okay, John, because one time, once upon a time, the vast majority of people thought the earth was flat. <laughs> you mean it's not? <laughs> uh, well, anyway, this, uh, this topic of FMEA is something that I think has been used and abused and, and overused way too often in when it comes to medical device risk management. You know, as people listen to you describe your buckets and you know, specifically like the harm of not using or the probability of, of providing wrong information, buckets two and three, I can imagine some people, especially those FMEA diehards, were probably thinking, oh, that's a use FMEA, you know? And I have a, a few issues with FMEA. 
So what are your thoughts about that as a tool? Well, I think that philosophically, you and I are exactly on the same page, John. Uh, let me be clear. I'm not against using the FMEA or any of the other tools that you and your audience are familiar with when it comes to risk. The only thing that I'm suggesting is that we have to recognize the limitations that they all have. Exactly. None of them are perfect. None of them do 100% of the job. And the concern that I have, and perhaps you have this as well, is that when people go through you know, using one of these standardized methods, even if the FDA, quote unquote, accepts it, even if some other regulatory agency accepts it, doesn't necessarily mean that it's complete. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. It doesn't necessarily mean that once you fill out that form that you're done. Yes. Because um, it's, it's just not that simple. Right. And getting into the use aspect, John, maybe one other issue that we can touch on briefly, because I think your audience would be, would be very interested in this, is this whole idea of, of on-label versus off-label use and yeah. misuse and so yeah. on. John, yeah. I know you're a big design control person. Yeah. So why don't you recap for me, for the audience, how the design controls treats misuse? What do they, what do they say about that? Well, I mean, it's when you're going through the design control process, you need to describe your intended use of your products. As far as that is concerned, I mean, that's that's how you label your product. That's how you market your product. And if you know about some likely misuse of your device, that's something that, that you should try to account for from a design perspective and ensure that no, no uh, cases where it's known where your product or technology will be used in an application that's different than what you intend. That's very much a gray area at times. But, but if you know that, you should do something about it. And you know, in some cases, some would even say in, in some extreme cases that you might even need to design your device in a way that prevents that, that misuse that you do not intend. So it's a slippery slope if especially when companies start to go through the design control process and try to get a product cleared through a, a lesser indication, so to speak, knowing that the device is going to be used for some different applications. I mean, the, the classic example from back in the day is stents. Um, almost every stent company in the world would bring a stent to market under a biliary indication, knowing full well that the stent was being used for vascular purposes. And that's a big no-no. If, if, you, if your risk and your design control activities only focused on the biliary aspects, but you knew that it was going to be used in vascular aspects, that's negligence. So that's something that you need to be aware of as product developers as you're going through the design control process. Well, that was a, a great response, John, and I'm sure that that helps your audience understand. It was, as you know, a loaded question coming from me <laughs> because great. one of my biggest problems with the design controls is that they essentially try to equate misuse and off-label use. Yeah. In other words, in, in other words, a lot of people think that you know misuse and off-label use is the same thing. I don't see it that way at no, all. I don't either. I think they're I think there's a lot of very legitimate uses of products, not just devices, but drugs as well, that are off-label, but they are not misused. As a matter of fact, what we teach in medical school is not what is on the product's label. We teach it the standard of care. And so I think it's a, it's a weak argument 
and many people try to make this argument, but it's a very weak argument to say that misuse is the same as off-label, especially if it's the standard of care. Right. So again, that this is another reason why I prefer my bucket approach as opposed uh-huh. to some of these other standardized tools because we don't play those games. And just one last thing that I'll share with your audience as we as we approach the end of our time together today. Like you, I spend a fair amount of my time going into companies and essentially helping them put together their risk mitigation strategy, or, or I should say their risk management plan for their design controls. Right. And typically the way that we do this is we'll, we'll put a bunch of engineers in the room and we'll have sort of a brainstorming session. And that is we'll tick off all of the risks associated with the on-label use of a product. And this is, this happened uh, to me once a few years ago. Sure. And then the topic of off-label use came up. Uh-huh. And as soon as that happened, the senior person in the, audience, in, in, the, in the room, who happened to be a senior VP of regulatory in a very large Fortune 100 medical technology company, he said, this meeting is over. Don't let the door hit you in the you-know-what on the way out. Oh, my goodness. Why do you think he said that? <laughs> I'll give you a uh, hint. It had nothing to do with regulatory. It had everything to do with product liability. Well, yeah. Because, I mean, there's a there's this fear at times when it comes to risk management that you're kind of screwed either way. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. You're if you if you don't document it and and it comes up downstream, then shame on you. Or even worse, maybe if you do document it, especially things that are off label and uses of your product that it's that you went into this, you know, eyes wide open and you, you almost project that this could happen. So I imagine that that person was, was had a legal background or a strong legal coaching in some way, shape or form and thought that that might lead to some downstream litigation. Well, that's exactly right. And so just, you know, to, to make sure that your audience understands, and then I'm going to offer you my pragmatic solution to that problem. And it's not a perfect one, but it's the best one I've been able to come up with. And you tell me what you think. But you're exactly right. The reason why he, he ended the discussion is because of product liability. Long story short, and I'm not an attorney, nor do I play one on TV. However, I have been involved in a number of expert witness cases. If the opposing counsel can show that you knew or should have known, or as my attorney friends like to say, were thinking about a particular risk, on or off-label, doesn't matter, that you did not sufficiently mitigate. You actually are held to a higher level of responsibility, a higher level of liability than if you are not. I hate to say it, John, but when it comes to the American legal system, ignorance truly is bliss. And so here is my solution. Again, I'm not proud of this solution. It's the best solution that I can have been able to come up with. And I've asked many of my attorney friends for a better one. They have not been able to give me one. All right. At the, at the beginning of all of my risk management discussions, I will say, and nobody is to ever write this down, but I will, t- I will say for the purposes of this discussion, let's limit our discussion to risks associated with the on-label use of yeah. our product. Yeah. And Again, I, can, I hope everybody appreciates why I would say yeah. nobody should ever write that down because it doesn't take a JD after somebody's name from Harvard Law 
to, uh, to you know, to, to have a field day with that if they find it in a meeting note. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, we've created such a culture where not only have we not created incentives to encourage people to ask certain questions, we've actually created strong disincentives yeah. for people to ask certain questions. I know. And as an engineer myself, that bothers me, but that's the most pragmatic solution that I have come up with. Yeah. John, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, and, and I'd, I'd like to just kind of, I do, and I'd like to, to, to use this to kind of wrap up our discussion on risk. Mike, you know, before I do so, this was a fun topic. We, we're just skimming the surface. I'm sure we could talk two or three more sessions on, on this in future podcasts. So uh, I'm going to invite you right now that, for us to do that downstream. We'd be happy to, John. All right. But yeah, the, 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 I guess the sort of the final word, so to speak, not to go all Jerry Springer, but the final word on this, I mean, two, two television references today, Bozo Show and, and the Jerry Springer Show. Uh, From a long time ago, some of your audience probably doesn't even know who we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. I'm sure it's on YouTube. The topic of risk is, is an important topic. And as Mike just, just shared with us, one of the key concepts is when, you're get, when you engage in risk management activities, is you need to really scope it out and you need to make sure the rules of engagement, so to speak, and that scope definition is clear to those who are contributing to your risk management exercises. As Mike suggests on this sketchy topic or the slippery topic of off-label use, if that's something that, that can come up, be sure that your team is aware of you're going to focus on the on-label use and, and make sure that that scope is clearly articulated within the context of your risk management efforts. One other thing I want to leave the audience with is this. There are lots of tools that are available. We touched slightly on the FMEA tool. There are the tools like fault tree analysis, there's HAZOP, there's hazard analysis, and there's use case scenarios, and there's all sorts of different tools that one might use when it comes to capturing your risk management. The tool choice is honestly, it's a little less important that where companies get into trouble when it comes to risk management is when they put all of their eggs in one particular basket, you know, such as FMEA. We're going to just do an FMEA and that's all that we're going to do. When companies do that, that becomes problematic. So be sure your approaches are holistic. And Mike, that's why I like this bucket approach to risk management that you've offered. Those four buckets or three buckets and the bonus again are Number one, probability of direct harm. This is the activity that you're doing during the design and development process. This is evaluating how your products are going to be used and the potential harm that can result to patients. Bucket number two, the probability of harm of not using. You know, again, in Mike's example, he shared a case where they compared the technology to some current standard of care and made an assessment of the possible harm that could result if not using. And then the third bucket is the probability of providing the wrong information. Again, Mike provided a great example. If you provide the wrong information, what kind of ramifications could happen to a patient? So those three buckets. And then the fourth bonus bucket, the regulatory risk, assessing that. Notice that in each of these buckets, there's no tool per se. It is a methodology. It's an approach. It's to ensure from a, you've captured risk from a holistic point of view. So, Mike, any final words before we wrap up today's session? 
Well, thank you, John, for that wonderful synopsis of what we've just discussed. And the final thought that I would leave your audience is, John has used the the metaphor here of a tool, which I think is very appropriate, regardless of which tool that you use. And as John mentioned, there are a number of tools in the the risk management area that one can use, and Greenlight offers some, some great ones as well. But none of them are perfect, and they all have limitations. And we have to remember that just like a risk management tool or any medical device for that matter, a tool is limited by the skill level of the user. So don't become a slave to your tool. On the other, uh, you know, on the contrary, make sure that your tool works for you. And regardless of which tool that you're using, ask ask yourself or ask the people that you're getting this tool from, how do these other aspects of risk, how are they taken into account, you know, via that particular tool? And if they're not, then you need to figure out some way to get them in there. And you need yeah. to talk to somebody like John or myself. We would be more than happy to Absolutely. Talk. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thanks again for joining the Global Medical Device Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find Mike Drews, D-R-U-E-S. Look him up on LinkedIn. He, he's the president of Vascular Sciences. He's advising regulatory bodies. He works with medical device companies. So he has some wonderful insights. He has his finger on the pulse of what's happening at FDA and other regulatory agencies throughout the world. So definitely look him up on your question when you have questions about regulatory strategies and pre-submissions and the bucket approach to risk management. He'll be happy to help. Again, this is John Spear, the VP of Quality and Regulatory and founder at Greenlight.Guru. And as Mike alluded to a moment ago, yes, Greenlight.Guru does have a software solution to help you manage ISO 14971 risk management. We also have a software solution to help you capture and manage and maintain your design controls and integrate those two things together, as well as a workflow for document management where you can manage, maintain, store your entire quality management system, all of your documents and records. So if you're interested in that and improving efficiency in your documentation and record keeping practices as you bring new products to market, be sure to go to greenlight.guru, request a demo, and we'll be happy to chat with you about that. So thanks again for listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.